Keith Devlin sees mathematical equations like sonnets. They are reflections, he says, of the inner world of our minds. But what most of us learn in school doesn't begin to convey this. And that's not just because some of us, like me, seem congenitally bad at math. Our brains are not primarily logical, but analogical. And what we've asked everyday math to do up to now can be better done by computers. Keith Devlin is also a leader on the frontier of MOOCs, massively open online courses. And he believes that online teaching is helping us finally learn how we learn. To be with this mathematician is to glimpse the beauty of mathematical thinking, illuminating what it means to be human in unexpected ways. Just as a, a trained musician who can read music can look at a musical score and in their head, in their mind, they can hear that music playing. For a mathematician, the same thing is true. Providing it's in, in, a, in a part of mathematics you're familiar with, you can look at those symbols and in your mind, this mathematical world is created and you can see the flow of the ebb of ideas and you can see it going on. It comes to life in your mind. I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being. Keith Devlin co-founded and directs HSTAR at Stanford University, the Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute. He's also a senior researcher at Stanford's Center for the Study of Language and Information. He grew up in England, in Kingston-upon-Hull. Were you born, bred, raised in Yorkshire? Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Hull uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in what apparently was the worst snowstorm of the decade in 1947. <laughs> okay. So I had a very uh, exciting, melodramatic entry into the world. Which you don't recall. I don't recall, no, but uh, my uh, my mother, who's, who's long passed away now, uh, she told me of the the difficulty getting a midwife in and a doctor mm. and anything, and the, the, the lady next door actually delivered me, because so, uh, okay. nobody could get out. There were snowdrifts outside the house of several feet deep, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and were you drawn to math, mathematics, pretty early in your life? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, you know, I used to like playing soccer and rugby and, 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 and rough and tumble things. And right. so I was, uh, uh, it, it was a sort of a classic uh, working class childhood. And the, the mathematics came much later. I, uh, the only role model I had in the family of, of anyone that was sort of, you know, had a degree and a, and a professional career was an uncle by marriage. And uh, he was a chemist, um, hmm. and, and, and his house was full of books. Uh, he would travel around. Um, he had an extensive collection of jazz records, uh, and he lived the life of an intellectual. Uh, so my first int- sort of introduction to anything to do with science and technology or learning in general was to chemistry. But that was pushed sideways a little bit just when I was about to or just when I'd started at high school. Uh, Sputnik went up. So I, I, I sort of began to sort of think in terms of physics. Um, once I decided I was going to go into physics, then, of course, I realized that I needed to be good at mathematics because that was the key to physics. I want to ask you this. You know, you, you, there's such a contrast between the way, not just the way you speak about mathematics, but the way you define it. And there's such a contrast between that and the 
Well, I'd say the understanding and even the experience of mathematics that so many people have <laughs> right at that age of school and then maybe never have another experience. Uh, yeah, that's right. If, if the last experience you have of mathematics is what you learned, certainly up to the middle level of high school and, yeah. and, and to a large extent even right through the end of high school the way it's taught, uh, you've basically never seen mathematics. And so most people in the world haven't a clue what mathematics is. Right. I mean, so let's talk about some of the ways that you, you know, you just, reading you is just, is, is your, your imagination yeah. completely ends. I'm starting with so one definition is you know, the science of patterns. Yeah, I, I was actually one of the people that really pushed that in the 1980s. I mean, psychology is the science of patterns of the mind. Mm. Sociology is the science of patterns of, of, of social interaction. So you can call anything the science of patterns. What makes it mathematics is the kind of patterns you study and the, and the methodology you use. <clears throat> but the reason I pushed it was dis very much to get away from this idea that it was about calculation and computation. So it was mm -hmm. I pushed... Um, and I, you know, it, it's it's nonsensical, but it needed to be done. It needed to establish itself as as different. Um, and and you know, more recently, I've actually started using the phrase mathematical thinking. You know, mm. I, I'm giving one of these massive online courses from Stanford. I'm about to give it the third time. Yeah, I want to talk uh, about September. that in a little while. Yeah. And we'll come back to that. But the, the thing to note is that I don't call it an introduction to mathematics. I call it an introduction to mathematical thinking right. to say that this isn't about computation and calculation and solving equations. It's about thinking about the world in a certain way that we have learned over the centuries is extremely powerful. Not the only way, not the best way, a valuable way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, here's another definition that, you, you know, you use variations on this a lot, that mathematics is a vast and beautiful mental landscape that generations of human beings have created over 3,000 yeah. years. A mental landscape. Uh, uh and that's what stumbled. That's that's when I became a mathematician. That's what I stumbled on at age fifteen or sixteen. When I here I was learning all of this mathematics because I needed it. It was I had a utilitarian view of mathematics. I was learning it because I needed the, to solve equations because I was going to be solving them in physics. Mm -hmm. And then at the age of about sixteen or seventeen. It all flipped because it all came together in my mind. It was no longer this disjointed collection of techniques you could use to solve problems. It all fell into the place, into this wonderful landscape. It was as if I'd been stumbling around in a forest and suddenly I'd climbed to the top of a tree and looked out and thought, this is the most beautiful place in the world. You can't tell it when you're down in the trees, which I had been, but the moment you reach an elevation where it all falls into place and you can see the whole topographic display in front of you, then the beauty is incredible. And the moment I discovered it, I said, um, I want to study mathematics, and I've been studying it ever since. Right. I mean, this idea that, that also that what you saw, what you work in, is, is not just about the physical world or about abstract equations, but but the inner worlds of our mind. Um, and then, in fact, yeah, that it, numbers, and this is such an interesting point you make, that numbers... Our abstractions, that, that, that they only exist in our mind, and then what we do with yeah. them. Yeah, there's this, there's this strong feeling that you have when you do mathematics that it's actually a sort of an objective reality, that the numbers, it's, it's known as the platonic realm. Yeah. That there's this sort of, it goes back to Plato's writings and ideas, that, you, that, the, that you're discovering things that are in this sort of ethereal world out there. Uh, and in a sense, that's, that's the case. But, but when you start to dig deeper, you realise that that ethereal world itself has been created by generations of human beings. And so mathematics exists as a psychological and a social construct, and, and which means that when you're doing mathematics, you're actually, even if you're doing mathematics about quarks or electrons or whatever it is, superstrings, if you're doing mathematics about, uh, about physics or something in the world, in some sense, yes, what you're doing is learning more about the world. 
But in a deeper sense, when you're doing mathematics, what you're really learning about is how the human mind encounters and makes sense of the world. It's really a mirror. So mathematics, in some senses, is a lens through which you look at the world, but in a deeper sense, it's a mirror through which you look at yourself in a very abstract and penetrating way. Mm. And I know this is frustrating to you because when you when you describe it that way, it, it, it feels so essential to who we are as a species, right? That somehow each of us should have some sense of that, even if we're not professional mathematicians. Or, you know, this this uh, line of Galileo that you that you also evoke often that language is that sorry that mathematics is the language in which uh, nature was written, which the universe is written. Um, yeah. And then there's then there's the great question about why why we don't really most of us walk around knowing this. Um, because no one's told us, um, mm. and it's hard to see it unless someone opens the door for you. Uh, I was lucky. I, I I discovered mathematics in spite of my education, yeah. um, and most of us, I think, do. Occasionally, you, you you come up against a really great math teacher that can open your eyes. In my case, I didn't have bad math teachers, but they uh, their view of mathematics was the same as everybody else's. It was a utilitarian subject that's, that that you need to know. Um, but they prepared the groundwork, helped prepare the groundwork for me to make that discovery. You know, I um, have no. I'm, I'm one of these people who, who gave up on myself mathematically a long time yeah. ago. But I interview a lot of scientists, a lot of physics yeah. physicists, um, yeah. and astronomers. I, I have to say, I, I'm not sure I've interviewed many pure mathematicians. I've in, but I've interviewed people who use mathematics. And yeah, so, sure. and so, what I've come to, and I think also my listeners come to, is an appreciation. You know, I, I think it may be too late for all of us, for many of us, to actually <laughs> grapple directly with mathematics, but to yeah. to start to understand the importance of this as part of who we are and as, as part of the universe. Um, I mean, I think one of the ways you talk about this and have worked with it that does help bring it down to earth a little bit is some of the connection you've made between language and mathematics. Mm. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, I think there's a, you know, people get turned off mathematics for various ways. If you teach it as just sort of stuff you need to know to balance your checkbook, which is yeah. nonsense because none of us balance our checks, but computers do that for us. <laughs> That's right. um, so, you know, on the other hand, because language is so important to us as living creatures, Everyone's interested in language one way or another, be we language mm -hmm. mavens or just interested in listening to the radio or reading or novels. You know, language is a fundamental part of what we ask. In fact, in, in a book I wrote in 2000 called The Math Gene, I actually made a, a case based on a sort of rational reconstruction over human evolutionary development. I made the case that actually mathematics and language are actually two sides of the same coin in, in terms of, of evolutionary development. The human beings, when we develop the capacity for language, and nobody knows when that was, it might only be, it might be as recent as 50,000 years ago, but when our ancestors developed language capacity, at that moment they developed the capacity for mathematics. It was the same capacity. It just plays out in different ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, you know, I just think in my own family, I, I had a grandfather who had a second-grade education, but he had this prodigious math capacity to do things with numbers in his head. You know, it was completely mysterious. Yeah. yeah. Completely mysterious, not taught. Um, I don't think he had any clue why he could do it. Um, yeah. And then I have a son now, say, who's 14. 
uh, he's, he's doing well in everything but math. And he said, um, my brain just doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, I think he's not the only kid who says that. I think I probably said that at some point. And so then I'm in, in the context of that, I'm reading you and, and this, this, yeah. this sense that there's something innate in us. And then why, why does that not make itself manifest? Because yeah. you know? uh, you know, I mean, everyone's on a spectrum with physical abilities and yeah. mental abilities. Created. Yeah. We're on a spectrum. And, 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 but, but, but a lot of the problem in mathematics is that an awful lot of what goes on in the, in the school system is basically trying to train the mind to do what a, a $10 calculator can do, hmm. um, follow rules and algorithms and procedures. And one thing that we do know is that the human brain does not find that natural. The human brain is analogical, um, not logical. And so hmm. when we try to force it to, pre, to, 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 to be procedural and exact, the brain simply doesn't like it. It was important for many thousands of years to be able to do computation and calculation because that was the basis of commerce and trade and buying and selling. Right. And you had to do it in your head or with an abacus board or something. So for hundreds of years, it was actually important to train the mind to follow rules, to do computations and get the right answer. Right. Well, now we've automated that and, it's, and we carry around devices in our pockets that can do that, which means that we can spend more time letting the brain do things that the brain is really well suited for hmm. that computers can't do very well, making value judgments, uh, making analogical leaps. Um, the trouble is the education system is at least 50 years behind the, the changes in technology and society. Right. The, that, it just takes me back to you saying in the beginning that, that you don't talk about mathematics but about mathematical thinking and that what yeah. we learn in school is that old-fashioned, narrow idea of mathematics. But, you, you're, saying, but, but you're saying that the brain, that the brains are, that that's not natural to learn, as you say, to come up with the right answers. Um, but how yeah. interesting that could be if even at a young age we were offered the invitation to do mathematical thinking. Yeah, it's as if you went along and you said, I want to be an architect, and you go to architecture school, and the first five years they teach you how to lay bricks accurately and, and, and in nice straight lines. You know, yeah. Taking advantage of being an architect does depend on the fact that people can lay bricks, right. but bricklaying and architecture are not the same thing. And mathematics is, is the, the architecture. It's the creative stuff you can do with these bricks. And, and it's no longer necessary for people to be able to build, to, to lay bricks themselves because we now have machines that handle the bricklaying for us. Right, right, right. Actually, so do builders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with mathematician Keith Devlin. See, oh, I want to talk to you about something else, another connection that, that um, you shine a light on in an interesting way that's always been very intriguing to me, which is the connection between mathematics and music. Right? Like we uh -huh, all yeah. know that that connection is there, but I've never really been able to comprehend it. Um, I'm not sure I can uh, comprehend it now, but I, again, I, I feel like you open this up in an interesting way. I mean, one, one place you said the most beautiful equations are like sonnets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you said yeah. that mathematics and music are both captured in dry symbols, but they both come alive when interpreted by the human mind. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, in the days when uh, 
when the only way to store and distribute music before recording devices was to write it down in symbolic notation, yeah. then, of course, if you, if you couldn't master that notation, you couldn't get to the music. Um, well, mathematics is still largely still like that and maybe always will still be like that. It, it is a hurdle that you have to master mathematical notation to be able to get to the mathematics that it encodes. But, but as I, you know, just as a, a trained musician who can read music can look at a musical score and in their head, in their mind, they can hear that music playing. Yeah. For a mathematician, the same thing is true. Providing it's in, in, a, in a part of mathematics you're familiar with, you can look at those symbols and in your mind, this mathematical world is created and you can see the flow of the ebb of ideas and you can see it going on. It comes to life in your mind. And take in and, the beauty uh, of it, which is a word uh, that you uh, and other yeah. mathematicians use yeah, constantly. And, and, and so you don't, you see through the symbols mm -hmm. to what they're about. Just as, I mean, the, the interesting thing is, I don't read music, so to me, music is just an intimate... You know, I, I can really resonate with people who can't get mathematics from looking at a book because yeah. I can't look at a musical score and hear the music. Yeah. Someone has to interpret it for me to play it. So, you know, you did this interesting project a couple of years ago um, called Harmonious Equations, oh, which I that. had yeah, so that. much fun discovering. Ah, that was a hoot, yeah. So let's just talk about a few of those. I, so um, there was this Euler's, is that how they said it? Euler's identity. Euler. Yeah, Euler, Euler's yeah, identity. Yeah. Um, you know, again, this very intriguing language at the supreme level of abstraction, seemingly different concepts sometimes turn yeah. out to have surprisingly intimate connections. And, yeah. and then as you uh, narrate the numbers uh, that are part of that equation, you know, yeah. what, what becomes clear to me, even though I don't understand this, is that, you know, you, there's kind of a world within each of these numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and then you talk about them uh, becoming a perfect mathematical composition. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So say, say a little bit about what Euler's identity is for uh, someone who doesn't um, well, know. I've, because I do work for the media and things, I always get asked the question, what's your favourite equation? You know, what's your most beautiful equation? So I, uh, even though in a sense the, the, the scientist in me says I don't have a favourite one, I, I love them all. Um, that's like saying you, have, you love all your children. That's that kind right, of thing. Yeah. But, uh, I always give an answer and my answer is always that it's, it's Euler's identity. And that's certainly a justifiable one from my point of view. There are very few basic constants in mathematics, but you've got these five most fundamental constants, zero, which is to do with addition, one to do with multiplication, um, pi to do with geometry of circles, e to do with, with natural logarithms, and uh, square root of negative one, which is to do with algebra. And given that they're coming from different parts of mathematics, or so it seems, um, there should be no reason why these things connect together. But it turns out there's the most beautiful, elegant identity uh, that connects them together, which says that e raised to the power i times pi plus one equals zero. You've got an equation, each one is mentioned once. All it involves is a plus sign, an equal sign, and an exponentiation and a multiplication sign for the i pi. And you've got this, this identity. There's no reason on the face of it why that should be the case. I remember when I first met that as a teenager, 
I was completely blown away. I mean, that you know, if if anything could have come close to convincing me that there was this thing, this thing called God out there, that was surely it. Euler's identity is an instantiation of the fact that what we thought previously was separate things actually always were part of, within the realm of mathematics, always were part of the same whole. And, and as with good art, not only does it reveal, um, not, only does it, not, in, not only is the beauty, the intrinsic beauty of the equation itself, in, in this case, not the beauty of the symbols, but the, the logical connections between them, the elegance of the connections between them. So it's beautiful on that sort of technical level. But it's also beautiful because it tells us that it's a great insight into the world. You know, just like the Mona mm. Lisa smile mm. captures an awful lot about being a human. And you can, you can, I mean, people discuss for endlessly what was going on in her mind, assuming it was a she that was a model, um, <laughs> what was going on in that person's mind when that painting was done and what did the painter capture. Um, but it's the same with, the, with Euler's identity. It tells you an awful lot about the, the, the mathematical world that, that we're exploring. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful piece of art, hmm. as well as a beautiful piece of mathematics. Hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you. And then in the Pythagoras theorem, this is another piece that you commissioned with these musicians. Um, and and there's this, I just want to ask you about this statement that you, that you made, uh, that Pythagoras said that number is the ruler of forms and ideas and the cause of gods and demons. Gods and demons. And you took that phrase as the as the theme for this song. So what did he mean by that? What do you understand in that statement of Pythagoras? <laughs> um, well, we've got to go back and put ourselves in the mind of Pythagoras. It was sort of mystical. It was a secret society. Yeah. There was all sort of occult realms to it. Um one of the interesting things about mathematics, and this comes up when people talk about things like the golden ratio and all of this kind of stuff, is this: even people who don't have, who profess not to have mathematical ability, there's a sort of fascination with number. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you, I've written many times about the golden ratio because people say that the golden ratio has all sorts of wonderful properties, most of which are completely false and bogus. You know, it's got nothing to do with the path, and then it's not the dimensions of the most perfect rectangle. And all. This is all complete nonsense. You ask yourself, why do people get so passionately involved? with number, and they do. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the only answer to that I can come up with is that deep in our psyches, we know that the world we now live in, the lives we lead, depend in a fundamental way on the discovery and the invention of numbers, just as they do on language. Most people don't publicly acknowledge that number is part of what we are, but I think deep down in their psyche, they know we were. Well, uh, but there's the some mystery of, to it, right? The fact that we don't understand it makes it mysterious, makes that intuition mysterious. That adds to it. Absolutely, that adds to it. But, but, but we all sort of know that they're important. And, and, and I think that goes back to what Pythagoras was saying, even back then in the days when it was sort of more occultish uh, and folded in with religious beliefs and all kinds of things. Even back then... Um, I think people realise that the, 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 the numbers were a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what, what, what Pythagoras' quote was, uh, uh, was referring to. Demons, the triangle, the square, the 
And again, or share this show with Keith Devlin at onbeing.org. There we also have links to more of his favorite equations set to music with the choral group Zambra. There are musical odes to Leibniz's series for pi and Einstein's energy equation. up, how teaching thousands of students online can be more intimate than a classroom. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with mathematician Keith Devlin. We've been exploring his view that what most of us learned as math in school doesn't convey the beauty and purpose of this endeavor. We're catching some of his delight in mathematical thinking as something that reflects the inner world of the human mind and can help us navigate the outer world in unexpected ways. Keith Devlin leads Stanford University's H-STAR, the Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute. I'd like to talk a little bit about this, um, the H-STAR project at Stanford that you're yeah. involved in. Because you, it's interesting the different kinds of things you've gotten involved with, it, even at Stanford alone, the study of langu- yeah. language, Center for Study of Language and Information, and now this H-STAR project, mm-hmm. which focuses on, as I understand it, the, like the human ramifications and applications of technology. And, yeah. and I'm finding that um, this is a subject... Everyone wants to talk about now, right? I mean, kind of the the enormity <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. role of technology in our lives is, is settling in the the reality of that and our and our understanding yeah. of that. And then people are saying, "Well, you know, what do we do with this? And how do we make yeah. sense of it? And how do we make it purposeful and 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 livable?" Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that you really surprised me that you mentioned is in terms of mathematics that that computers have only really affected affected mathematics around the edges, that in fact mathematics is yeah. still needs free-form scribbling <laughs> to survive, yeah, yeah. which is so yeah. interesting. I mean, mathematics takes place in the human mind or, or increasingly... Uh, when human minds interact together, that we still have this nice romantic image of the of the lone mathematician working in the attic at, late at night, and and those people still exist. But if you start to look at mathematics as a whole enterprise, and it's a huge enterprise, then um, an awful lot of mathematics these days, like everything else, is done collaboratively in teams that communicate right, right. by uh, both physically co-locating themselves at conferences and seminars and workshops, and and collaborating over the internet. But but it it's still about people talking to and with people and. And the technology, other than the fact that we use email and things like that and video conferencing, the technology is still not really affecting the product itself. It's just around the edges. And I and I really do think that you have your finger on a pulse of this disconnect. Um, let me just say it this way, that, you know, on the one hand, as you and I have been discussing, many of us, I think most of us are illiterate in the language of mathematics. And then there is the increasing reality that the indispensable tools of our everyday lives, you know, starting with our mobile phones, as you say, rely on masses of abstract math. Yeah. So we're living with this thing, these things. We need these things. We can't begin to grasp what's behind them. 
Yeah. Um, the scale of that has got huge, but it actually, that began with the very beginnings of mathematics because arguably mathematics began, and I would say this is when it began, with the invention of numbers. And, and we think that took place in Sumeria about maybe 8,000 years ago. And numbers were introduced essentially to provide as a form of money. Uh, numbers hmm. were things that mediated trading goods. The moment we invented numbers, we did it to introduce into interpersonal reactions in society, to introduce abstractions that could mediate. Because numbers are pure abstractions, money is an abstraction. I mean, 10, right. a $10 bill is just a physical manifestation of the number 10. I mean, that's all it is. You've just got a physical token of 10 and you've got a mental token of 10. Um, and nowadays we have bits on, on disks in, in, in banks. I mean, you know, we right, don't even need right. the $10 bill. It's right, just a, a right. configuration of bits in the computer. So... We are mediated in terms of the kind of life we lead, the length of our lives. Almost everything about our lives is, is mediated by money. And money is just numbers and numbers are abstractions. And it's all that's happened recently is the scale has got much bigger and the rate of change has been fast. But our lives became irrevocably changed and bound up with numbers the moment we invented numbers and money about 8,000 years ago. Mm. Um, and we, we've gotten used to that. Um, and people actually don't think of, num of money as, as abstracts. No, they uh, I don't. Do they when, don't. <laughs> I mean, I do remember when credit, I'm old enough to remember when credit cards came along. And I do remember that initially there was a lot of unwillingness to go to a credit card because people wanted dollar bills. In, yeah. in my case, I was, it wasn't in real money. It was, it was yeah. pounds and coins and so. Uh, but now we've got used to that. And then, of course, when, when, when you start having mobile phone transactions and things, you don't even need the credit card anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, you just go in and you, you just wave your mobile phone in front of a, of a scanner. So, um, and the rate of changes has gone up dramatically and the extent has gone up. But it's actually not a new phenomenon. Mm. Um, we are more aware of it because we are living through the latest transition. You know, this is it's not it's just kind of tangential to that, but it feels a little bit related. One of the interesting ways you talk about how mathematics has evolved is, is that across history, um, there are there's abstract math going on which has no conceivable application um, at the time in which it's being done. But for example, yeah. you've talked about how encry encryption systems that now run the internet um, followed on work with prime numbers a couple of centuries ago, yeah. at, at which time it was outlandish to imagine that these things would ever have practical applications. And now fundamental aspects of our reality depend on them. Yeah. And in fact, one of the one of the leading people, like G.H. Hardy in, in, in Cambridge, actually went on record in a book and said... Uh, he was quite sure, because someone had challenged him about, you know, the fact that you can use these things for practical uses in mathematics. And he said, he went on record as saying nothing he had done in his professional career could ever find practical application. And by golly, <laughs> within 100 years, it's the basis of the internet and modern society and, and, and security. So uh, if there's one thing history tells us, it's never, ever look at something and say this will never be used. Because in the case of mathematics, time and time again, things come around and get used. Uh, it's just, you know, you know I, I'm actually in two minds about this. I'm always surprised and I think, wow, this is what's, what, what Eugene Wigner described as the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Yes, yes, yes. We, we, we develop mathematics to be useful in the first place. Uh, and so the, at first it's, got, it's obviously going to be of use, but then we sort of follow how in, our intuitions. We go off on these tangents. We pursue these abstract ideas. And, and, and we end up producing something that just looks like a pure art form, just just having no context, no connection with reality or whatever. We've, we've let our imaginations run free, subject to the constraints of mathematical logic. And we produce these new theories, and they're beautiful and they're internally coherent. They don't seem to have any application. And then 
100 years later, maybe longer, someone comes along and finds a really important application. So part of me says that is absolutely surprising. On the other hand, if you go back to the point I made earlier, that mathematics is really just looking at the way the human mind encounters its environment, then if that's what we're doing, you should expect that things we develop, even though we can't understand how it's going to be relevant now, will eventually be, be relevant. Because what it really tells us is at the time we've done that mathematics, we haven't developed as a society or individuals to the point where we can mm. appreciate what we've just seen. We have to we've catch up with our own And we have to catch yeah. up with it. Interesting. And so in a sense, it's not a mystery. It's just part of what mathematics is and how it works. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being, today with Stanford mathematician Keith Devlin. Stanford has been a pioneer of MOOCs, massively opened free online courses. And Keith Devlin has been one of the first professors to join in, offering introduction to mathematical thinking to thousands of students at a time all over the world. So tell me about these massively open online courses you're doing. I mean, what is it like to teach 27,000 people? <laughs> uh, it's like going on the radio and talking to however many okay. million people we're talking to now, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've always been driven for various reasons towards uh, trying to spread the word. There's a sort of evangelical streak in me here uh, to sort of spread the word <laughs> about mathematics. You are to, totally to... <laughs> a mathematics evangel- evangelist. I know that. Yeah, but... Whenever there's a new communication medium, um, I, I sort of look at it and, 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 and I can't resist seeing if I can use that or how I could use that. I know I can use it. How can I use that to communicate mathematics? And you do it in different ways. You know, the way you, in a movie, you do it one way. Uh, on TV, you do it a different way. In a mm-hmm. textbook, you do it one way. And so I'm now, you know, I gave my first MOOC a, a year ago. And um, then I repeated a variation. I changed it a bit and gave it again in the spring of this year. And then uh, in September this year, I'm going to give it a third time in, in a third incarnation. And I think education to me, I approach to MOOC the same way. It's not about me talking to 100,000 students. It's about me talking to one student. Uh, in fact, in, in many ways, I find MOOCs more intimate than giving a lecture to a class of 30 students. And as most of my time, I, I give lectures to classes of university students of maybe between 15, 25, 30 students sometimes. And I give big lectures to sort of a few hundreds of students. But those are very impersonal. They are theatrical displays. Um, but part of doing a MOOC is your, it's you and one student because by its very nature, it's one person sitting at a computer in front of a screen interacting with you. Now, the interaction right. is is mostly one way, but part of the trick of putting these courses together is to compensate for the fact that the student can't directly address you back. Now, in a big class of 100 students, the students can't do that either, but they have TAs and they can interact with each other in the classroom, and so there's there's a lot of interaction going on. With a MOOC, uh, the challenges are more, more acute. Um, when you think about individual students in remote places, who are not even in the same classroom as other students and, and don't have access to anyone to ask questions for. Um, that makes it a very interesting thing to design. 
Um, and most of the mathematics is done with a, a cheap little camcorder mounted on a tripod hmm. above my desk. But I did go into the campus TV studio here and spend a, an exhausting six-hour period, actually, recording all of the intercam punctuations, which actually, if you look at them, I'm not talking about mathematics. I'm establishing human contact by looking into that camera, eye to eye, looking at that student, because it was all about establishing human connection and getting them to feel comfortable with me as their friend and instructor. Mm. As we kind of draw to a close, I'd kind of like to um, take you back to the book you wrote in the late 90s, Goodbye Descartes. The oh, yeah. End of Logic yeah. and the Search for a New Cosmology of Mind. Uh, yeah. I mean, I found yeah. that very, you know, a re- really wonderful um, book. And you, you know, one of the things you're pointing out is that just in about the last 300 years, we'd, we'd glorified rational thought and logic in a yeah. way that had not been done before in history, even the history of science, kind of treating our minds as calculators. But that we're now getting this much more sophisticated understanding of our minds and brains and learning and intelligence. And then the the reason I thought I would like to talk to you about this now is, I mean, that was, I think, 96 or 97. So here we are these decades later and these decades of rapid transition and, and rapid new fields of knowledge about, in particular, our brains and our minds and our bodies, um, so I wonder, you know, how are you think? How would you look now at this notion of, you know, what what the world looks like beyond logic, um, beyond yeah, Descartes? Um, well, if anything, what's I'm saying, what's happened since then has simply reinforced the feelings I had then. It was interesting the transformation that led me to write Goodbye Descartes, and it was very explicitly goodbye to the sort of Cartesian logical based approach to life. And uh, in a sense, I was finally renouncing my former self because you know, I went into okay. the mathematics. Um, right. I mean, I don't think I was ever a sort of a total Platonist. But I went into mathematics seduced by the fact that of, of the fact of the power of the logic and the reasoning, and, 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 in, and in the 19th century, mathematics rooms supreme. It's the basis of physics, of engineering, calculus, a lot of our economics, and so forth. So, you know, mathematics literally built the modern world to the degree where people in mathematics, including myself, began to think, well, we've got this powerful mechanism. We can take it into the realms of psychology, sociology, linguistics, and start to make sense of these soft sciences, you know, that are... Uh, and kind of not solve every problem with this and, logic. And we, can try, we could certainly try to solve every problem. Now, that, that had already been tried a, bit, a few decades earlier by the people build, trying to build artificial intelligence systems and expert systems. And in both cases, they had limited, but very limited success, but not great success. Um, but, you know, undaunted by that, I thought, well, we can maybe do it in natural language understanding, languaging processing. So when Stanford founded its Centre for Study of Language and Information in 1983. I got very interested and, uh, and came out as a visit in 85. Now, what I didn't expect was that when I got to CSLI, I would be brought face to face with all of these uh, psychologists, these linguists, these uh, psycholinguists, these sociolinguists, the sociologists, the ethnomethodologists. I was brought up with all of these people in, in, in what I used to call the soft sciences, um, right, as right. opposed to the hard sciences, and thinking, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't so naive that I think I would be able to say, here's some mathematics, it will make your discipline more, more, more robust, although some of my colleagues seem to have that belief. Um, <laughs> but what I, I, was, I was prepared to sort of be taught new things. What I wasn't prepared for, but what happened to me, 
was I ended up realising the huge limitations on mathematics in those domains. And this happened to Chomsky when he tried to sort of do the same to linguistics in the 50s. It, right. it became clear that there were, it, it was good stuff and lots of stuff has come out of it, but it wasn't coming close. It was like trying to reach the moon by building taller and taller ladders. That was not the way. It didn't mean to say you wouldn't get to the moon, but you weren't going to get there by building a ladder. And building the ladder that got us to the moon um, certainly involved a lot of mathematics. And building the ladder that will involve us to understanding, the, the sort of, to, to sort of really understanding people and society, mathematics can certainly play a role, but it's not the rule of the king and lord that it was in physics. It's the rule mm -hmm. of, 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 a, of, a, of a trusted worker who can provide stuff as and when it's needed. Um, we needed to stop trying to build mathematical ladders that would help us reach this moon of, uh, of understanding and of, of human beings and society and simply view mathematics as a tool that could play a useful role in a more broad and holistic disciplinary study, mm. interdisciplinary study, that would help us to understand it. And, and along with that came, in my case, the final acknowledgement that mathematics isn't the discovery of, a, of an external platonic realm, that it's actually the building and study of a realm within our own minds. I don't know if you think of, would think of this in this context at all, but it seems to me that in this century, you know, and as late as uh, 2008 with the economic downturn, the crisis, um, we've kind of lived more deeply into this recognition that that we had called things rational that weren't rational, right? There, you know, oh, this, yeah. this principle <laughs> yes. of logic um, and, and pretending that when numbers involved it, are involved, it is logical. You know, somehow it was those, in precisely those systems, our financial systems um, that yeah. work with numbers that turned out to be these monuments to irrationality. And then, then suddenly there's this recognition also in the field of economics, which I think had 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 that Cartesian view um, yeah. that somehow at bottom this is all rational, that in fact what is, you know, this is what you're pointing at as well, we're, we're getting a more complex, sophisticated understanding of ourselves from a lot of different directions. Yeah, yeah, and you know, ultimately mathematics is black and white and the world we live in is an infinite variety of shades of grey. Um, and... Uh, I mean, mathematics can work in, in, in localized ways and be useful, and it can also provide an interesting metaphor. It can provide metaphors that help us make decisions. I mean, it's, it, there's all sorts of great uses mathematics has in, in sort of making sense of today's world and building the world from, of tomorrow from it. Um, but as I said a moment ago, the days of the 19th century when mathematics ruled how you built your machines and how the machines worked, those are gone. And if anything, the, 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 the financial crisis was a great warning that says, if you build systems based on mathematics, you are heading for disaster. Hmm. Uh, and this cycles back to this business about you know, NSA and security. Yeah. Those systems are built on mathematics. And they, if, if they're not checked, they will lead to disaster every bit, if not worse, 
than the financial crisis for the very same reasons, because mathematics works when you're talking about a clockwork mechanical universe. It doesn't work <laughs> when you're talking about human societies. Right. Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. But, you it's know, not, no. yeah, I, I, and, I, and I, it's so important. And I also do want to circle back to your love of mathematics. And in fact, uh, yeah. you know, it's very interesting to me the the spiritually and theologically evocative way, yeah. the aesthetic way that um, physicists and mathematicians um, speak of mathematics. There's this this quote of uh, the f- English mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell that I've seen you use a few yeah. times. I'm just going to read this because it's very beautiful. I hadn't uh, hadn't had it and seen it before. Mathematics, rightly viewed, possesses not only truth but supreme beauty, a beauty cold and austere like that of sculpture, without appeal to any part of our weaker nature, without the gorgeous trappings of painting or music, yet sublimely pure and capable of a stern perfection such as only the greatest art can show. <laughs> yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah actually, actually, as you were saying that, I, was, I remembered your very first question was, was, you know, when I was a child, do I have, am I spiritual? And I actually mm-hmm. sort of tangented off immediately to talk about not, being, not having religious beliefs in a sort of a white-bearded God in the sky and that kind of thing. But I mean, and the reality is, of course, I'm deeply spiritual. It's just that my spirituality is in, is in mathematics and through mathematics, understanding ourselves and the place we have in the, the environment we're in. So in the sense, if spirituality means revering existence, uh, revering my fellow creatures on the planet, uh, reflecting in them, thinking about them, in my case, is through the, through the eyes and the mind of a mathematician, then I'm as spiritual as it gets. And, <laughs> and, you know, and if that manifests itself with poetic language and overblown use of language, then that's just the price you pay from that spirituality. How, how do you think... Um this work you do, this life you lead, this mathematical thinking um, with which mm-hmm. you move through the world, you know, how, how do you think it forms your sense of, of what it means to be human or affects the way you live your life? Um, I see the world differently from, from anybody who's not a mathematician. In fact, I see the world differently from many mathematicians. So in some sense, uh, I'm seeing things that other people are not seeing. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's almost... I'm, 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 Actually, I guess I have to use the word shades of grey, although that's been co-opted for a different purpose these days. But, but anyway, um, I think we all see the world through shades of grey. Um, there's a period, when most of us learn mathematics, there's a period in our early career, when we're in our teens or 20s, when we think that mathematics provides the black and white view of the world, the view of the world. I remember distinctly having that view Mm -hmm. uh, because it seemed to be so logically correct. Um, Now, it is logically correct, more so than any other discipline, but the question is, at what cost for for connecting to the rest of the world, Mm. um, especially the human social world? So there's that period, but then you you go beyond that, or you should go beyond that, to realise that, Mathematics is just another shade of grey that gives you a different perspective on the world, but it's still the same world. And, and you know, a, 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 the grey world to one person is not that much different from the grey world to another people. So, so this really is my last question. Is, is, there, any, is there any frontier right now um, that you're aware of where, where new things are being learned or new processes are, are being experimented with? Um, that you're watching that are... <laughs> wow, where do are, we begin? That's, <laughs> well, just, oh. just tell us about one thing that's unfolding that you're really watching with great interest. Um, oh, it's the one I'm right in the middle of, which is online okay. learning. Not because of the fact that we're reaching thousands of people. It's not so much that. It's, it's just we're finally beginning to understand how people learn. Um, the, uh, here's, a, here's an analogy. Uh, if you went back to the 18th century and you got sick, 
good luck because you <laughs> might find someone who instinctively was a good doctor or was lucky, but medicine was just hit and miss by then and depended on talent and, 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 and whatever it was on luck because it took the development of first chemistry, then biology, evolutionary biology, and the development of modern science on which we can ground medical training. So when you go to a doctor today, the chances are that person is going to make you well, providing you it's a recoverable disease, because we've learned the science on which medicine's built. Science in 200 years, science went from hit and miss hunches to a scientifically grounded discipline where the chances were very high that the doctor would be able to help you and, and make you well. Right now in education, we are in the 18th century. Uh, we are actually, I think, within maybe within a couple of decades, have been able to actually improve mathematics education to, to the point where people actually do begin to get it mm -hmm. and, and get over the hurdles because we're beginning to understand it better. Education is now starting to make that transition to the fact that, yes, there'll be good teachers and bad teachers and better teachers and worse teachers, but it will all be grounded in understanding. And in the process of understanding how we learn, we are, of course, doing what mathematics has been doing since the very beginning, as I've been saying, we've been learning about ourselves because the more we learn about how we learn, the more we learn about what it is to be human. Keith Devlin is executive director of HSTAR, the Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute at Stanford University. His books include Introduction to Mathematical Thinking and Life by the Numbers. To listen again, share this show, or subscribe to our podcast, go to our website at onbeing.org. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, you can follow our show at beingtweets. I share my thoughts at Krista Tippett. On Being is produced on air and online by Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, and Stephanie Bell. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. On Being is a Krista Tippett public production, distributed by American Public Media, and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, tools for living in a world of anger and violence, a radio pilgrimage with Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. You'll hear a rare, intimate conversation with this man and with others who use his practical, lyrical teachings in surprising settings. I started to understand that in, on a very, very deep level that it's possible to bring this into your work as a cop because as my energy started to change, the energy that I got back from other people started to change, even including the people that I had to arrest. I heard Martin Luther King mention that a monk had asked him to come out against the Vietnam War and that he was uh, nominating this monk for the Nobel Prize. Thai's uh, deep practice emerged in the midst of tremendous suffering of the war, and that's a part to me of his authenticity. Mm -hmm.
if uh, as he's able to be peaceful and graceful and kind in the midst of the suffering he experienced without denying the suffering, I think that's a perfect model pathway through the African-American experience into the full human experience. That's the next On Being. Please join us.